I am so excited to have Jennifer Wallace here. Jennifer is the Jennifer or Jenny? Jenny. Because, right, I've seen, so people call you Jennifer, but then, you know, like Lisa Damore calls you Jenny. Yeah. And people who know you call you Jenny. Yes. Right. Jenny so with now, an IE. Jenny with an IE. Jenny with an IE. Because now I know you. Like, this is our first conversation, and I'm so excited to talk to you, Jenny. I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I follow you on TikTok and I love your advice. And I so wish that when I was in college, I had somebody normalizing all of the experiences of being in college. And so anyway, I'm great. Oh, that's so, you know, I have this thing where I just think no one knows me. And it's, and it's all so new because I am really when it comes to the book, Never Enough. And I'm going to spend the first part of our conversation just telling people if you want to be a responsible parent, you need to read the book Never Enough, right? That's the, the, I, I think I'm trying to find a way to convince people because this book is so important. I think the book Never Enough by Jennifer Wallace, and I'm going to hold it up. I've got the actual hard copy, and then I've got the audio book. And Jen, Jenny, you did such a wonderful job reading that book. Oh my gosh, it was... It was an adventure. The, yeah. the first day of recording it, um, I we were like an hour into the recording. And the producer, who's just in, I've never met her. She was lovely, but she was in my ear. And she was like, I don't think you're going to make it through this for the rest of the day because my voice was already starting to crack. Yeah. And it was, and so she said, "Let's keep giving you the the lozenges and the the sore throat tea." Did you know you can OD on cough drops? No, I OD'd on cough drops. Wow, did I got sick? Oh my gosh! Did you have to? Was it like a detox? Did you have to go somewhere? No, I didn't have to go anywhere, <laughs> but I did have to go home. At the end of the day, and one of the one of the side effects, if you look at it, because I had an event that I was supposed to go to that night, yeah. and I emailed my friend saying I can't attend. I literally OD'd on cough drops, and they're like, "That is so you, like oh to have an OD experience on a cough." Right, drop. and then just for anybody who's concerned about also ODing on cough drops, what kind of cough drops, and just how many cough drops are dangerous? I had six cough drops. Okay. In a short period of time, but okay. then I also had that sore throat tea. Mm. And anyway, it makes you. Yeah. See, this isn't in the book. No one's going to hear about. This. Not in the book. Nobody knew. But then I will say, I spent the rest of that week quiet, except when I was recording the book. Yeah. And it was delightful. I, yeah. you know, my kids were were serving me, and <laughs> you know, I just totally rested up so that it wouldn't happen again. Um, and I loved reading, you know, what I loved about reading the book was getting to revisit all of the amazing people that I met, uh, in the four years of researching this, the wisdom yeah. that these parents have given me, the, the personal stories of some of their darkest moments that they opened up and shared with me in the hope that other parents could avoid it. Yeah. It. It, it was very humbling to reread um, to reread all of those extraordinary stories. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what I feel in your voice, this genuine connection and an appreciation. And there's this sense of humbleness. And I want to I want to make sure everybody reads this book. So the book's never enough. And I'm going to hold it up again. So if you're listening to the podcast, it's never enough by Jennifer. How do I say I'm going to guess your middle. Is it Brahaney? Yeah, Brahaney. Rahedi. Okay. And, okay. Because I like to say your whole name. So people just say Jennifer Walls. But these are the little things. And this is all about showing you that you matter. Yes. Like, I, I, I mean, right. Your first, middle, and last name. And someone might wonder, why do I care so much about saying Jennifer Brahedi? Bre, 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 was it? It rhymes with Jenny. Jenny Brahedi. Right. Jennifer Brahedi Wallace. And also calling you Jenny. And those things, and I have to tell you, I was a little embarrassed even having this conversation in front of everyone because, like, I don't know. Like, I want to look like I know what I'm doing. But the thing is, like, you, we talk a lot about mattering and we talk about the importance. You talk a lot about mattering and just the idea that we hold space, like, we're in a space together 
and that you matter. And you made me feel like I matter. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And it was really You do matter. You matter to so many people who really feel alone and like they're the only one going through this experience. And that, you know, that's what we have in common because I wrote this book. Um, I think for the same reason that you do your TikTok, if I can be presumptuous. Yeah. To to show people you're not alone. This is these are feelings that are pretty universal. And parents are feeling them. You know, for you it's students on campus. For me, it's parents in their homes feeling like, Am I the only one feeling this way? Am I the only one up at night worried about my kids' grade? Am I the only one who's running myself ragged on the weekends, going to travel sports, you know? hoping to do something that one day benefit my child. Um, And so I wanted parents, I think the best thing that has come out of this book was parents saying they feel seen and educators saying, I feel like now I understand what parents are going through in these communities, that it, it sort of fostered an empathy that I think was missing from the conversation. Yeah. Oh, I got chills because... I did a lot of prep coming into this because not only do you matter, but what you talk about matters. And this book hit me so hard. I mean, it really hit me in so many different places. And I've been obsessed with it because I think about it from the angle of the student. I think about it from the angle of the parent. I think about it from the angle of the educator. And um, I'm running through a list of the things I love about Never Enough. And I've never never, like pushed a book so hard. Like this is like really... Because this is a cautionary tale, and and it was a cautionary tale that impacted you and anybody who reads this. And I I think you should get the audiobook and the hard copy, um, because the audiobook you hear how humbled you are because you are you're a mom, you're a mother, <laughs> you're you've got three kids, and I want to understand. And I know you include this in the back of the book. The, there's this whole section in the back of the book. And I encourage anyone to read this book. Start with start with the end. Okay. I think you need to start with the first thing parents ask me when I tell them about this book is, how has your research changed your parenting? Here's a list of changes I made in my own house. As much as it is for you, it's a note to self. So I hold on to these lessons learned and continue to make them a daily practice. And you know, we go through this and it's never worry alone. Parents matter. You matter. Uh, be a selfist. Help kids keep achievement in perspective. Tell failure stories. Boy, I love rejection. Rejection's so good. It's so meaningful. Uh, Jenny, tell me what, what's been one of your um, most uncomfortable rejection stories while promoting this book? Do you have one where you were embarrassed? And And just so everyone knows, and while you think about this, so Jenny has had a wonderful interview with Katie Couric that we're going to link to, which really digs into the specifics of the book. And I try when I have these conversations not to repeat a lot of what you're talking about. We'll get the essence of it, but we're going to link to the Katie Couric conversation, which was very new when the book just came out. You're really on. That was good. Were you happy with that conversation? Happy with it. Yeah. I yeah. Like you kicked ass. You were great. Honor to be you know, interviewed by somebody like her. She's amazing. Yeah. You were wonderful. And you communicated the information in such a concise and articulate way. I was so impressed with an early conversation like that. But you're a reporter and you're used to this, but um, but it's a different game. And then um, your conversation with Lisa Demore uh, was wonderful as well. So we'll link to that. I even liked the conversation with Megan Kelly. It was a short one, but I thought Megan went in there pretty hard and fast. And <laughs> did you like that one? I did. I think it was a whole hour. Oh, so I only saw like I only saw like about a twelve and a half minute. Yeah, no, she <laughs> cut it up into pieces. Okay, um, but that okay, morning, it was supposed to be I think a half hour, and then they emailed me and they said actually we'd like to do a, the whole hour. And so okay. anyway, those are great. But I want everyone to understand, and you know, a lot of people probably know you just from your writing and reporting, but just there's so much great information here, and you as a human being and as a and as a mom and as a person. I think it's really important for everybody to understand just you, you know, where are you right now in your parenting and what has been, what's been the most dramatic change that you've made? Mm -hmm. So I have three teenagers. I have an 18 year old who's applying out to colleges as we speak. He's writing his essays. I have a uh, 16 year old 
daughter who's a sophomore, and I have a 13-year-old boy who's in eighth grade. And um, where have I come with my parenting? So I think before researching this book, well, let me let me back up a little bit. Yeah. I had been noticing over the years, over the 18 years, just how different my kid's childhood was from my own. And I was not liking it. I like I just think of a few scenes sort of flash before my eyes. Like one of them is that with my oldest, I really didn't want to sign up with travel soccer because I enjoyed our time as a family and our family unit. And I actually think I'm not anti-sports. My third child, and I'll tell you that story in a minute, big yeah. sports guy, he really wanted uh, the the travel leagues and all that. But at, for me, my greatest joy was just being together as a family on the weekends. Um, in New York City, and I think it's true really of everywhere, our lives during the week are so fractured and people are running and family dinners didn't, weren't happening as often. Um, but I remember with my oldest taking him to the playground when he was, you know, in first grade after school and it was empty. Nobody was there. And I was like, where is everybody? And he said, they're all playing travel soccer. So <laughs> so anyway, you know, opting out, which I was doing over the years, you know, I was sort of having this push and pull. How much do I want to buy into the culture? How much do I want to do it sort of my way? Um, and then I remember my youngest, who's now in eighth grade, we were my husband generally was the one who who brought him to travel soccer games. But I remember one of the times that I had to do it. It was an hour and a half drive. It was sleeting. It was freezing cold. Um, you know, the kids were fine on the field, but the parents were frozen on the sidelines. And I looked around and I said out loud what I had been thinking for so long. I looked around and I was like, I said out loud, why are we doing this? Like, why are we here? watching eight-year-olds run in the freezing cold. Why are we doing it? Is it working? Like, what's going on? Yeah. No, he answered. They just didn't answer. I look like a crazy person asking that right. question. But I have been asking the same question. Why are we doing this? Why did, you know, whether or not my son went into advanced math, why was that such a big decision? Why was whether or not we joined the soccer league such a big decision? Why did every decision about childhood feels so heavy. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, that's what I was thinking about. And so how did my parenting change? Yeah. It went from not knowing what was going on to knowing what was going on and knowing what my role was to be countercultural. So, you know, it, before researching the book, I was very much like in the push and pull, not knowing, you know, how much to push, how much to let go. And then after researching the book and seeing how our kids are getting these messages of achievement um, and how important achievement is from everywhere, social media, the larger culture, their peers, their peers' parents, that I, their schools, I have found that it is my job as a parent to really, as much as I can, create a haven from that pressure, a place where my kids can recover, where they don't ever have to question their worth. Um, it doesn't mean I don't have standards as a parent. I still do. I still have a bar that's unique to each of my children, what I think they're capable of, where I think they're putting in their effort and can feel proud of their work. That's sort of what I'm gunning for with them now. As opposed to a shiny outcome, I am putting my energy into helping them do work that they are proud of. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. I Well, as you were saying that, I had these flashpoints of the different people you've interviewed and I imagine you sitting there talking to your future self a lot of times. Like that's that's what I was picturing. And in the book, you go through all these different scenarios with parents who have pushed very hard, who have defined their self-worth based on their children's outcomes and, and really lived by my child's success is my success. And what percentage of your success was your children's success prior to writing the book and how would you say that that would factor now? So I would say that, you know, there's something researchers call child contingent self-esteem, where you get your self-esteem from your child's achievements or, you know, you get high self-esteem when they achieve, you feel low self-esteem when they don't achieve. I don't think that a lot of my worth was wrapped up in my kids. What my worth was wrapped, not, it wasn't wrapped up in their achievements, it was wrapped up in my mothering, which I think is different and just as unhealthy, to be clear. 
Yeah, explain that. I did not feel like I was worthy when my kids were doing well. I felt like I was worthy as a parent when my kids were good kids and were behaving well and were polite. And so I, I, and again, you know, I think it's natural, but I was getting a little too much of my moral worth from my kids, if that makes sense. It wasn't so much the achievement as it was, was my mothering, were my skills as a mother translating into creating these good humans. Um, And I think as a society, you know, parents have always been on the hook, right, for raising, for raising good kids. But I believe that we used to get our worth from a lot of different things back, back in the good old days, you know, um, were we a good neighbor? Yeah. Are we um, a good, you know, religious attender? Did we go to church or synagogue or, or you know? So I think as parents, so much of our adult identity has yeah. become wrapped up in our children. And yeah. that is where I think there are some, could be some pitfalls. So. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I, 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 I fin- Please finish your thought because I got too excited. You know I was getting so excited because it's because your sense of mattering, and I really want to matter to be you know, us mattering, and we'll we'll define what that is. But this idea of you mattering, of Jenny feeling like she matters when she looks in the mirror, is about how are your kids interacting socially and presenting themselves. Exactly. Were they? Did they reflect my values? Did they reflect well on me? So it, again, it was an achievement, but it it wasn't really that far off from achievement. Um, but- right. I mean, it's a lot of that. I think it's it's tied together. And if you look at, I look at life through the lens of there's there's five different areas that 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 we go through when we navigate change and just deal with everyday life. You know, social, emotional, physical, financial, and academic. And the acronym is the acronym is SEPFA. It's a horrible acronym. I just like say it because it's so ridiculous. Uh, but you deriving your sense of 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 accomplishment as a parent or evaluating yourself based on you know it's more of like the social and emotional and your your child being the one who sits with someone who's alone or you know being selfless in that and i think parents do that and have different ways and i think that it's 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 interesting to hear that because so many of us focus on just the the academic piece because high school's so academic but there's so many different aspects that we cling on to and I should mention, I have a 17-year-old, so I have a senior, so we're in the same boat there. Uh, I have a 15-year-old, so I have a sophomore, oh. and then I have a, um, I have a, a fifth grader, so my, my youngest is a little younger, and uh, I've been doing this for over 25 years now, you know, my, my whole adult life, and I would say, uh, and I've, ha- I've had conversations with a lot of the same people I think that you've had conversations with, uh, and the statement of things have never been worse when it comes to uh, our kids' mental health and wellness. Would you would you agree with that? If we were to say worse in terms of, let's say, 100 years, keeping track of data, although I don't know in the 30s what type of data or 20s, but uh, how, would, what, how would you respond to that statement? I would agree with you. It's interesting that you bring up like the 1920s. I remember when I was doing my research for the book, I was looking at how, this didn't wind up going in the book, but I was looking at how, who were the kids who did well during the depression? Mm. Um, And what did they have in common? And it was kids who worked on the farm. And I believe it's because they knew that they mattered to their families, that they had real work, real responsibilities, and the animals were needed to be taken care of. They needed to be milked. Um, and so those kids who felt this high level of mattering in the depression, I think, were the kids who, you know, according to the data, did the best. Um, I do think things are, I'm, let me just say I'm hopeful. Yeah. Uh, I do think things are bad, I think. But my hopefulness is that our kids have the language to talk about it. And, you know, parents, me growing up, I didn't have this kind of language around uh, anxiety or emotions. Um, I think we are right to be calling out the youth mental health epidemic. But I think, and the data is coming out to support this, 
we would be just as right to be calling out the mental health uh, issues of their parents. And so one of the things that I really found common in the book, and actually the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Making Caring Common, just released a few months ago data that looked at within families, um, if a child was struggling, so was the parent, that there is this kind of two-way street in a home. And you know what I found in my research was what decades worth of resilience research teach us, that a child's resilience rests on the resilience of the adults in his or her life. Right. Today's adult resilience is low. We are feeling burned out in our jobs. We are not feeling appreciated. So for 10, 12 hours a day, we're going to an office where we feel like a cog in the machine, that we could be replaced any time by AI or another worker. You know, there is so much uncertainty in adult life that it is very hard to come home after a long day of feeling like you don't really matter and really show up to be the first responder to your kids' struggles. This yeah. is not to blame parents. This is to say we need to be taking care of ourselves and each other just as much as we yeah. need to be taking care of our kids. Yeah, that's it's so interesting when we turn it back on us because you know I think we're we're in a pretty similar stage in life and it took me um, 22 years to see a therapist and, and I'm help me Harlan. You know, I'm the one who tries to figure, I try to muddy through things in a non-traditional way. I try to look at life through a different lens of why and try to kind of create my own path and, and, and understand. And what I recognize is I can't do it alone and I need help. And uh, it's one of the things you mentioned in, in just what you've learned and what you suggest other parents do. And I, I do want to get into, you know, I want to get into the 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 big topics of of the book, but what's really interesting, and I left this conversation open ended, is it is not about our kids. It's not about our kids, and for a parent who's listening, and also, can I get a lot of students who listen? You're kind of getting like a little insight into, you know, you can make a deal with your parents. Like, if I see a therapist, will you? You know, let let's both do something, because what I'm learning is if you don't feel like you matter, Jenny, and I don't feel like I matter and my wife isn't doing the things to help me to feel like I matter, and my kids aren't doing the things to help me feel like I matter, well, then I'm going to be in a real deficit. I'm going to have a real problem because if I don't have the things that make me feel like I'm worthy and uh, enough without my kids and my wife and all the outward affirmation and TikTok and Instagram, then I'm, not, then I'm going to feel worthless. And I'm here to tell you, I, I think, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is we need outlets in our lives. We need social proof that we matter. We need to know deep inside that we matter for who we are at our core. And we need to surround ourselves with people like friends, yeah, co-workers who can remind us of our worth when we inevitably feel bad, right? Yeah. Have a failure when we feel down. That's when we need to reach out to people because we need to be reminded from time to time of our own worth. And I say this to my kids all the time. I would, there is any success I have ever had in my life is a thousand percent because of the people around me. I am a hundred percent the product of people investing in me, believing in me before I even believed in myself. Yeah, uh, I thank it by acknowledgments, Robin Stern from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, where I've done a little bit of consulting. Um, and she, yeah, I told her about the book and I said, I don't know if I, you know, is this really, should I be writing this book? And she said, yes, it has to be written by you and it needs to be written now. And so she gave me, she believed in me even before I believed in myself. Um, so we, so I don't think we are, we are islands, yeah. you know, in our in our country, we are very much this, um, you know, hyper-individualistic that we think we have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which, by the way, is literally impossible to do. Try it. Can't do it. Right. We need, it shouldn't even be a thing. We need people in our lives who we can lean on, yep. who can support us through the hard times. Okay. So when we are trying to do the same for our kids... And we're trying to help them to find things that matter, places. We jump into college. You have a senior. I have a senior. 
And I talked to a lot of parents about college search selection and, and typically I introduce it as search selection and scarcity. And it's really search selection and transition. And transition is the most important part and the bookends of life are transition. And we don't focus a lot on the transition piece. And the transition piece is when we feel the, mo the loneliest, the most disconnected, uh, we forget who we are. A student who goes to college who was a star athlete is no longer a star. The star student is next to a lot of other star students and you get lost in the galaxy of stars because you start to forget who you are and you don't see your own light because you're looking at everybody else's. And students, I think, and for parents, they look at colleges for a lot of the wrong reasons. And to spare, like I want to, I, I, I get so uncomfortable when I talk too much during these conversations, but but these frameworks are what what I, I try to distill big concepts into very manageable frameworks. And it's, for college, it's pretty simple. It's what do you want? Because you got to want something, right? So for your senior, your senior wants to go to college, I imagine, right? Yep. And I don't know if you've had this conversation, but I encourage all parents to have this conversation of actually ask your kid the question, do you want to go to college? Mm -hmm. And in our high achieving communities where, and I want to drop this in. So Jenny, when it comes to high achieving communities with high achieving students is there a real risk is there a risk what i mean this is a softball question but like are our kids really at risk in these environments right so in 2019 two national policy reports came out that found these kids were officially an at-risk group meaning they were two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety and depression. So not just like occasional blues, clinical levels of anxiety, depression, and that they were two to three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. And it is because of what these researchers were finding is this excessive pressure to achieve. So, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, I wanted to achieve. I'm, I still am a high achiever. Um, I love to succeed. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to get good grades. I wanted to be the president of this and that. But it didn't define my life the way so many of the young people I spoke to said it made them feel. It made them feel like their worth was tied to their grades, that they were only worthy when. And I, I interviewed uh, like 500 kids. I'd love to read you a couple of open-ended questions because these you know, it, their answers in the survey that I conducted, um, these were co mostly college students that wrote in. I said, what is one of the, what is, you know, what do you wish the adults in your life knew about the pressure you felt in high school? And they said things like, um, I wish they would have understood that grades weren't everything. Their pressure to be an overachiever was the catalyst for my anxiety and depression issues. It felt like my, another one, it felt like my worth was tied to my grades. And the last one that I excerpt here, I wish my parents knew that it was okay for me to get less than perfect grades sometimes. It's okay, it's okay not to be exceptional in everything. So what I was finding was different today than it was when we were growing up is that every success set a new floor. So if a kid did really well in math, now they were expected to do even better. What's the next level? How do you, how, you're good at chess. Now let's bring it to the national level. You're good at tennis. Now we need to get you a USTA ranking. That nothing, every pursuit, there was like a, a measure of success tied to it. And, and, and it had, those kids felt like they had to be exceptional. And that's just not a realistic way to go through life. You can't, as this child said, you can't be exceptional in everything. Yeah. Nobody's asking you to be. Um, but that is the message they are receiving from the environment that they have to be, that they're right. only worthy when they are exceptional. And it's it's fascinating to see that when they don't get that reinforcement or they struggle because change is uncomfortable and struggle is normal. And if we don't learn how to struggle, we don't build the grit and become resilient so that we can bounce back. But if you're not perfect, you can't get into a highly selective school because they look at these they'll see a student as, as being imperfect. And when I reframe this, and, and your book 
So the book Never Enough. This is uh, Jenny Wallace, who's who's the author, and and the, your book is transformative because even in my framework or the framework that I deliver, nothing is mine. I just you know witness enough to be able to share it. But this framework of 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 what do you want? Okay, because do you want to go to college? And then it's uh, people, places, patience. Really, the framework is what do you want? What makes you uncomfortable? People, places, patience. Because the uncomfortable part limits us and makes us feel like we're not enough. But as we go through this, it's what do I want? Okay, I want to go to a highly selective school. What makes me uncomfortable? Well, only 3% of people get in. And and it's a lottery. Okay. So then the next question is people, places, patience. So it's who are your people? And we've talked about this. And in the book, Never Enough, you talk about how students who are balanced and and are successful are, are, are students who have support. They have their people. And then places. Places are where you sweat, play, pray, live, learn, lead, love, and work. So where, who, where are your, where, what schools have your people? And then where are the places where you can find connection and community? And one of the things I've been sharing is whenever you look at a school, whenever you look at any change, whenever there's anything going on in your life where you're going to be surrounded by new people in a new situation, you want to make sure you have at least one place where you are accepted, and included simply because you exist, all right? So I've been, I've been championing this, where you don't have to audition, you don't have to be invited. So when your senior graduates and goes to college, depending on where our kids go to school, like I know my, my senior's uh, Eli, and Eli's a gymnast, and he loves moving his body. The number one criteria for us, for him, because it's not even about me, it's Places where can he go where he could do gymnastics, you know? And and he's not going to the Olympics, and he knows he's not. But Jenny, figured it out. I get chills because gymnastics is a place where he matters, yeah. right? Yeah. When our kids go to college and they don't have community, when they don't get into the business club, when they don't get into the fraternity or sorority, when they deal with rejection. They feel like they don't matter. And when you feel like you don't matter, you are never enough. Yes. You open yourself up to anxiety, depression. Yes. Right. It's interesting because I have a similar framework um, that I've been talking about with my son is, you know, when you look at the research and you really drill down, and I talk about it in the book under the, the, it's the section, um, reject the premise. Yeah. The good life is found through going to a good college. Um, So let's just put that aside because there is lots of data to back that up, that it is not a college's rank, the prestige uh, that matters for later life, career, financial, and well-being, success. Um, It is how you go to college. So what I've been talking about with my senior are the six key experiences that researchers have found actually the six key experiences on campus that are heavily correlated with later life well-being, career, and financial success. And those six things are, do you have a professor who knows you and who takes a personal interest in you? Do you have um, a multi-semester project or an internship where you can apply what you're learning uh, in, in, in new ways? Do you have extracurricular activities like your son with the gymnastics where you feel a sense of belonging and connection? Um, So in other words, it's how to matter on the college campus, how to feel valued and where to add value. And I think before we send our kids off to college, we need to be having this meaningful conversation about how to matter on your college campus. And you rightfully point out that Throughout life transitions, our mattering fluctuates. We don't know who our people are. When we start a new job, when we relocate, um, the death of a loved one. I mean, there's a lot of things where our mattering uh, is in flux and it is throughout our lifespan. So we need to cope with these feelings of not mattering. So how do you cope with them? I mean, one of the ways that I really encourage my kids to cope when they feel like They've either made, you know, they're made to feel like they don't matter or feel rejected by something, whether it's a class or an activity, whatever. 
is um, something I said to, I was doing a webinar with a corporation, uh, a startup that I won't name, but it's a very popular startup. And the young person said, um, he was 30. He said, sometimes I really feel like I don't matter. Is there a mantra that I could say to remind myself? And I said, I have something better than that. I said, today at lunch, go down to the cafeteria and thank the man or woman who always serves you your hot lunch with a smile, who makes you feel good, who lights up that moment in your day, and tell them. Tell them that you've been having a long week, but that you know you can count on their smile, and boy, does that light you up. Unlock ma- other people's mattering, and it will feed your own. So in those times, I mean, when I when I was at college, the stuff that gave me mattering, I liked theater, and I worked at the homeless shelter. Um, was the only student-run homeless shelter in the country. And that was real responsibility. I mattered to those homeless people. I had to help them with resumes, find jobs, find housing. I I have never experienced mattering as deeply as I did in that situation. And when I think back to my college experience, it was not where I went to college that mattered. It was yeah. how I went to college. Yeah. And, um, you know, I... Yeah, full disclosure, I went to Harvard and I, you know, it was an 18% acceptance rate. But I can tell you that the education that I got there, I could have gotten at a lot of schools. And it was that I learned how to matter on that campus that brought me well being and protected me from loneliness. Yeah. And really taught me how to apply those school, those skills outside of the college campus. It's interesting because. It feels like I matter when people want me and like me and acknowledge me. And when a student goes to Harvard and they're exceptional in their high school, and it doesn't have to be Harvard, it could be whatever school where they're recruited, where they're wanted, where they stand out. It's when you aren't wanted, when you feel rejection, do you matter? And can you feel that sense of mattering and understanding that that's an essential life skill to be a healthy, functioning human being. And, it, it, and it, that really slips through the cracks because I know that you, you've you mentioned before that a lot of parents look at college as, as a life vest that becomes a lead vest because students don't know how to live independently and feel like they matter. Like, I mean, and that's the whole thing. Like, this is such, I love this conversation because, because at the core, and I know that you were trying to get to, in the conversation with Katie Kirk, it was a wonderful conversation. It's great. And and I encourage everybody to listen to Jenny and Katie because, Jenny, you, you really go deeper into the stories and, and a lot of the anecdotes uh, of, of the conversations you had with so many of these people, so many of the different parents and the students. But at the core, it's how do we help our kids to live a life as independent adults where they wake up and go to sleep knowing they matter without depending on other people and other things. Yeah. So I will say that mattering is 50% the belief that you are valued and 50% the social proof that you are valued. And I don't mean social proof that you get into a name brand fraternity or sorority. I mean the social proof that you matter, that you, your grandparents light up when they see you, when you run errands for them, when you, you know, call to check in on how they're doing, the social proof that you matter, when you see, you know, you're you're volunteering for for a homeless shelter and feeding people who yeah. really are made to feel marginalized and that they don't matter. So half of it is this belief that you are valued for who you are at your core, but you can't just matter in isolation. We just, we need, we need social barometers. We are social animals and we need other people to show us that we matter. We need that social proof. And we do that by adding value to the world. So I think what, where you're, where we could sort of really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like really divide this is there's something that I call false mattering, which is, you know, getting a lot of likes, getting um, sort of a hollow sense of mattering, things that you really, 
you matter because you you wrote a book and so now all of a sudden you matter no like i that's a that to me is false mattering real mattering is wow you spent 4 years of your life researching this and you have given advice to me that is changing my family that is real mattering does that make a difference yeah. you understand yeah. what i'm saying oh i do i do it's 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 meaningful it's it it is not fleeting it's not superfluous fluffy um you know, surface, uh, more, more ego, uh, fueling mattering, um, as opposed to more substantial mattering and, and, and substantive mattering. But here's, here's where I want to explore a little bit or push back a little bit because yeah. I don't like that. It's 50, 50, you know, because for me, it puts 50% of the responsibility of feeling like I'm enough on social interactions but but I but can I make it this? Can I be have it be fifty one percent? This is what I fifty one percent me, forty nine percent social. So I know no matter what I will always matter, even if I don't always get that social feedback. So I okay. So I'm not explaining it well. So the fifty percent that's for others is that I am making an impact on other people's lives. It is not that I am winning a popularity contest. So the feeling valued. So so. Think of it like a wheel. There's a researcher who created a, re a wheel around mattering that I think is really helpful. And half of the wheel is feeling valued by yourself. Half of it is feeling valued or whatever, a third yeah. by yourself, a third by your family, and a third by your larger community. And then adding value to yourself to your family and to your wider community. So what I'm saying is it's the feeling valued and the adding value that yep. it's not so much that I need accolades as I need to know that my life is significant and I am making a positive impact on the world. Yeah. Because I think we are we are going nowhere fast if all of our mattering is my own self-importance. We have we have that self-improvement culture, the self-help culture. And yeah. it's not it's not getting us where we need to be. You can't be just sitting in your room reading all the self-help books. You need to be going out into the world and seeing what your strengths are and how you can make an impact. It doesn't have to be a huge impact. It could be a small impact. Right. Life. Right. I understand that. I think I'm getting caught up in, like when I talk about college success, I'll say college success is 51% you and 49% or less or fewer. Oh, it would be fewer. 49% of the responsibility is this is the school, but fifty one percent is you or more. and the and the reason I like to do that fifty one percent is because I think so many people have been so hurt and and have expectations that other people and the world is going to respond one way or another, where you know, even if I volunteer and someone doesn't smile or I talk to that cafeteria worker who's been putting food on my plate and I say thank you and they give me a dirty look. I've had that at Starbucks. Like I'm at the airport and I see someone who's miserable. And I'm like trying to I go, thank you, someone, how's your day? And they and they just ask me for my order. You know, they're closed down. So in that situation, it's like, okay, my expectation was I was dependent on someone to give me something to help me to feel like I mattered. And but but for me, the way that I redefine it is mattering isn't based on someone's response. Mattering is me feeling the light and offering without requiring anyone to respond any way than they're than the way they're gonna respond. Yes. That's exactly right. That's right. So so every day I could wake up mattering, even if the people around me don't give me what I want. And I think there's a whole, you know, I'd love to, I got a few more things that I, that I really want to cover. And it, I think it's going to be, we'll hopefully have another conversation, which I would love to do a, a tangential conversation based on expectations. Because um, Jenny, I think so many of the problems parents have and our students have are based on expectations. And when expectations and reality don't align, there's a problem. And the problem is we don't allow the world to be the way the world is. And we are so rigid in what we believe is going to be a positive outcome that we don't allow for our kids to be who they are. You know, we're too afraid. Um, it's a whole thing. I get so lost in it because I'm like obsessed with expectations because I think that 
from your interviews in the book, and everyone needs to read the book and they need to listen to the interviews. A parent starts off with an expectation that my kid is going to go to a high achieving, highly selective school. And if that kid doesn't perform throughout their 10 years from kindergarten or whatever to however many years, the expectation is there's going to be a problem. There's They're not going to be equipped. And I want to just hammer this in the clearest way, uh, expectations versus reality. Yeah. I think what you're talking about, the way I talk about it in the book is the definition of what success is. So we are bombarded with society, with social media, in these high achieving communities with this very narrow definition of what success looks like. And I have tried very, you know, in researching this book, I have really made a point to my kids to show them people outside of the traditional markers that we have for success. Like, for example, we have a landscaper who um, we were putting in new trees and things like that. Um, and he went to a school in Boston, uh, you know, popular school, and he dropped out and he decided to be this landscaper. And the he's 30 years old. The passion he has for his job. He's an arborist. He's a specialist. And I want my kids around him as much as humanly possible because boy, does he have the recipe for living a successful life. There is so so in in my narrow world of success, right? My kids see the the banker and the lawyer. You know, they see sort of the traditional jobs, but they don't always get to see people that are doing things that are expanding the definition of success. And one of the ways that, so I think when you talk about expectations, what you're talking about is this narrow band that boy, we need to open up because there are so many people out there who have not gone to college. I mean, I worked at 60 Minutes. I was a producer for Morley Safer. He didn't go to college. He was one of the best writers I'd ever encountered. Watching him work, he worked, uh, he learned on the job. So I, my eyes have always been opened to alternative paths. And it's something that we have talked about in our own home. And, you know, I've said to my son, he actually said he might do a gap year. I think that would be awesome. I highly recommend that. Um, couldn't recommend it enough. So, so in terms of expectations as a parent, for me, it's about see, tr- really getting a PhD in my kid is how I talk about it in the book really getting to know them for who they are, what those strengths are, and expanding my view of success and and really talking about it in concrete ways with my kids. And here's how I do it now. I say, I, I want to be successful. And like, to be clear, I am very high achieving and I like that and I get a lot out of that and I want healthy achievers. But I also want them to be ambitious for more than just career success and academic success. I want them to be ambitious with their peers and have strong, meaningful friendships. I want them one day to be ambitious with the family that they decide in any way to form it. I want them to be ambitious with their hobbies that bring them joy in their life. So I want this ambition for them and to be bigger than just this narrow band that I think we have become fixated on as a society. Absolutely. And I know challenge success. I know you mentioned that and you're a big fan of challenge success. And I had a conversation with Denise Pope who talked all about those studies that you also mentioned in the book about success, long-term success. And it's not about where you go, it's what you do. And we know Frank Bruni mentions that. And I, I talk about this again and again and again. There are so many different paths to get where you want to go. It's more important to experiment and explore and figure out what do you like and, and what do you not like. Um, when it comes to my kids, just just so you know, when I when I talk about college, I say, um, you know, so Eli's going to probably go to a school, whether he goes next year or the year after, he'll go to a place and he'll have experiences and some of them will be really great and some of them will not be so great. And then he'll either stay there or he'll go somewhere else and then he'll have more experiences and some of those are going to be really good and some of those are not going to be so good. And that will happen for a while. Maybe he'll go to a different country for a little bit and have other experiences. Maybe he won't. And then he's going to graduate and, um, and he's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I don't even include the school. 
No. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And and in terms of expectations, you know, there is this expectation that we want our kids just to be happy. Um, that's all we want. We just want happiness. And before writing this book, I used to be, I used to say that. And since writing the book, I realized I want more for my kids than just happiness. I want them to live a life that matters. I want them to have more than just fleeting joys. I want them to understand meaning and purpose, not with a capital P purpose. I mean, great if they get that, but the little piece, being purposeful in life, not just being, you know, on your phone, going through TikTok and being owned by people instead of instead, like being purposeful in your actions. Um, and so my expectation for my kids have gone from them wanting to be happy to them wanting to just find meaning um, and find their people. And and that's my greatest wish for them. OK, so I appreciate that. I subscribe to that. A first generation family, a parent who's really worried about their kid being successful a parent who really values grades. I had a letter the other day from a student who talked about how he used to lie to his parents about, about their grades. And he mentioned um, his ethnicity. I don't even want to include it because there's so many people who correlate with high achievement and grades are going to reflect my child's ability to be successful and thrive. And for a parent who is so focused on grades, so focused on grades, this is this book. You must read it. It's a cautionary tale. But I, but in in your words, from the research you've collected, to that parent whose grades matter this much, what do you say to them? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. I would say one: Do you want a relationship with your child for life? Do you want to have this healthy, interdependent relationship with them, where they want to come to you, where they want to continue to build a relationship with you? Then you have to treat them with respect. And you have to treat them as more than just their GPA. You have to see them fully for who they are. It does not mean not having expectations, but it is about sending them the signal as much as you can that who they are deep inside is what matters most to you. I understand the fear. I understand, you know, wanting wanting my kids to do well, wanting to give them that kind of life best in a sea of uncertainty, um, which is, you know, a college education and doing well. But in our in our world, which feels so uncertain. And so, you know, AI is now on the scene. We don't know what 50% of the jobs are going to be for our kids. What we know leads to quote unquote success is not the GPA. It is, does your child, you know, know what their strengths are? Do they know how to use those strengths to make the world a better place, get paid? Um, you know, do they have people around them that can support them? Do they do they enjoy healthy, interdependent relationships? Because as I said earlier in the podcast, any success I have had is truly because of the people around me who believed in me, who built me up, who picked me up when I when I had failures. And so teaching our kids, those are the things that we want to arm our kids with because truly the future is so unknown. We do not know these static you know, markers like a, a degree from a specific college might get you in the door, but that's not what's going to lead to long-term success. Yeah. And I and I want all the parents to flip to, so every parent who listens to Jenny and goes, easy for you to say, grades are really important. I, I don't believe it. So you need to read the book. And what you need to do also, because you are such a fantastic reporter. So the resources in this book, and I'm a huge fan of starting, I like to start at the end because I think it's, I, I think there's something so telling but like your research, I was like dumbfounded. My jaw, every time you would read different stats and I'm like going through these, all of these are cited. And there's a website for all of these stories. And and I'm sure there's gonna be more. There was just another one in, in the Chronicle of Higher Ed about um, loneliness and, and the, the loneliness data that keeps coming out. But I encourage all of you, if you think that Jenny's full of it or you think I'm full of it, um, Check out all of the data and research because this book is so important. Never Enough is so important. You know, there's two things. I want to be very respectful of your time. I was hanging on your every word when you were talking about the six different things that you are using to help your senior, and we got through three of them. Um, and the other three, I wanted to make sure we included those. Do you do you know where we left off? I don't. Let me see if I... Uh, so it was... it was about the college experience? Yeah, it was like the six things of a professor who... Okay. 
So I'm going to just quickly read them so you have them. I don't okay. know where I left off. Okay. Taking a course with a professor who made learning fun and exciting. So a professor that you were engaged with and yeah. feeling a connection to. Having a professor who cared about you personally as a student, beyond being, personally as a person, beyond just being a student. Having a mentor who encouraged you to pursue goals while you were on that campus. Working on meaningful multi-semester projects. So places where you were able to use what you were learning in the classroom and make an impact outside of the classroom. Participating in an internship, again, a way to make an impact. And then finally, being involved in extracurricular activities where you got a sense of connection and belonging. These six factors really boil down to mattering. A place where you can feel valued and a place where you can add value on that campus. So helping your student matter on that campus. When they call you homesick, you know, in inevitably in the early semesters, remember that mattering acts as an antidote to loneliness, but it's also a vaccine. It's a vaccine against loneliness. If you can find a way to matter on that campus, a volunteer project, being, you know, working out at a gym and being a gymnast, if you could find a place where you matter, that can buffer against feelings of loneliness and anxiety and depression. And this is not just a skill that our kids need for college. This is a skill they need for life. How to matter. How to matter is what is, to me, mattering is like this protective shield that I can put on my child. Yeah. And knowing how to matter is something that you can carry with you for life. And it will get you through the hard times. And exactly what you were saying earlier as well is for the parents, it's for anybody listening and for a student who has a parent whose life is solely dependent on you, and they have one passion and it's you, encourage them to do something else, to have something else that excites them so that they can find a mentor, so that they can have someone in their life, so they can do something where they can feel like they matter. Because the problem isn't that your your parent loves you so much and doesn't have anything going on in their life. It's that they don't have enough things in their life that probably make them feel like they matter. And for the right, and for parents listening, it's like what makes you feel like you matter other than your kids? Because if you don't have those things, then you're constantly going to be searching and seeking and you may not even be aware of it. So hopefully this could be a moment where where us as adults, as parents, grandparents, whoever you are, we all need to feel that sense of mattering. And there's an epidemic of not feeling that right now, which correlates to loneliness. To wrap this up, Jenny, I'm going to tell people what I love about the book Never Enough. Okay. And you can tell me if I missed anything. Number one, I got a lot. I got like 10. Okay. It redefines achievement. It redefines what is good parenting. Okay. A parent who shows up, a parent who's present. Oh, that is such a good parent. Such a good parent. And I know in other podcasts you mentioned when your kid comes home from school, it's not what what was your grade, how do you do in Spanish, and what did you have for lunch, um, what was the big, what's the biggest laugh you had today, you know what was the most shocking moment. You know, I, I try to come up with with unique questions. Um, this book helps. The book Never Enough also helps students to understand um, why they're so stressed, um, and and parents to understand why they're so why the kids are so stressed. There's so many great stats that I love that really help us to understand that these kids really are at risk. Um, you get solutions, okay? There's this whole section on mattering. And and the book could be called um, Never Enough. You know, it's what, when achievement culture becomes toxic and what we can do about it. But it's when achievement culture becomes toxic and how we can matter no matter what our grades are. You know, like I think that would really be a, a big takeaway. Um, mattering is not performance. It's about existing. And being recognized for who you are. Parents feel responsible for their kids' success, uh, but you're not responsible, right? Right? I know there's data with that. The pressure of getting into selective schools, it's really a lottery. I'm a big fan of if you could be at a, um, the, all those kids who don't get into those highly selective schools, where do they go? They go to places where people give them a lot of money and they have experiences where they are connected to an alumni network that's extraordinary. And they also have more access a lot of times earlier in their education to experiences that will help them to feel like they matter earlier in their college experience. Okay. Reinforcing the idea of um, redefining success through challenge success. And Lisa Demore, a steady parent, 
is a parent who can really help work through this. Redefining the end game, really what is this all about? And the opposite of rejection is mattering. And once we could recognize that, we can really be more empowered and empower our kids to feel a sense of self. Would you say that's, I did a good job? Got it. I love that. I, the last thing I would say is I've gotten such an extraordinary reaction from the book and parents reading it, getting the mindset, getting tools and wanting more tools. So I have launched uh, with my partners. I, I've co-founded something called the Mattering Movement, mm. offers free resources for students, uh, educators, and additional resources for parents on how to create cultures of mattering at home and at school. Um, and uh, so anyway, if you're looking for how to to bring it about in your everyday life, head over to the Mattering Movement, sign up and join us. Okay. Well, I'll include a link to that. And I want you to know I am a partner in this. Um, and I'm so grateful that we can have this, this time together. Thank you for being so generous. And for anyone who wants to learn more, get the book Never Enough, listen to the audio book, go to the Mattering Movement. Is there anything else that I need to include? No, thank you so much. This was amazing. You're Thanks, such a big anchor and, and I just, I very much appreciate you. This is wonderful. Likewise, hopefully we'll get to do it again soon. I'd love that. All right.